Hey folks, Preet here. We have some very exciting news here from CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Historians Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman will host a brand new podcast called Now and Then. Every Tuesday, Heather and Joanne will help us make sense of the week's news through the lens of history and share resonant anecdotes from America's past. The first episode of Now and Then comes out Tuesday, June 1st. Just search and follow Now and Then on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to join Heather and Joanne for a special Cafe Live event on Thursday, May 27th at 6 p.m. They'll discuss how they see their own roles as historians in 2021. And they will share powerful stories of female historical figures who have helped to write the ship of state toward a more perfect union. And be sure to join Heather and Joanne for a special Cafe Live event on Thursday, May 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The event will be streamed on Cafe's Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube accounts. RSVP at cafe.com slash live. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You're not supposed to charge those people a whole bunch of money for EpiPens. You're not supposed to be able to have the monopoly power to push them around on the price of insulin. You're not allowed to lie to them about, oh, you've got all these choices for online travel when two companies control 90% of the market. That's Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. We spoke recently at an event hosted by Ted Hobtay Gabber's Live Talks Los Angeles. It was in honor of the release of the senator's new book. Senator Klobuchar has long been on the forefront of antitrust policy. She currently chairs the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, Competition Policy, and Consumer Rights. And she introduced a comprehensive and ambitious antitrust bill. We talk about her proposal and the tangled history of antitrust issues in this country, from the controversies over breaking up Standard Oil and AT&T to the current debates over how to limit the power of the tech industry. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It's time for some listener questions. This question comes in a tweet from listener Dia Staines. First, love the podcast. Thank you. Question. Can you explain the reason for keeping legal investigations quiet when there is pressing desire to see justice being done? Dia, thanks for your question. I think you focused on the right word and that is justice. And as I've often said, and other people have said before me, justice must not only be done, but it must be seen to be done. But that doesn't mean that investigations should be conducted in the public sphere. There are a whole host of reasons in your garden variety case, and even especially in sensitive cases, why investigations as much as possible should be kept quiet by prosecutors and by investigating agents. There are a lot of reasons. I'll mention a few. One is fairness to the targets and the subjects of any investigation. You know, as you see from swirling press reports about various people being looked at by an investigative agency or the DEA or 
the SEC or the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, that has an adverse reputational effect, which can work in unfairness. It can cause pretrial publicity if there's ultimately a charge to be brought. And prosecutors in the Department of Justice and throughout the country on the local level as well need to be and should be, for justice to be done, sensitive to leaks of information and publicity around investigative steps. Now, sometimes that's not always possible because if your investigative steps include interviewing people who you can't muzzle and are free to talk about having been interviewed, that word can get out. So that's one reason. Another reason is for the purposes of having an effective investigation. You don't necessarily want the public and more importantly, the subjects and the targets necessarily to know what you're up to, what you're asking about, what documents may be relevant so that they can destroy them or they can flee. One of the biggest problems we have, and I refer to this multiple times in my book, where investigations have to be cut short before they're really completed in the ideal way, is if word gets out that someone is under investigation, they may flee the country, flee the jurisdiction, and then no one is going to be held accountable and justice will never be done. Another reason related to that is investigators want to preserve the element of surprise. So there's not just the issue of flight and destruction of evidence, but witnesses get coached, witnesses get threatened, people are told to shut up. People manufacture evidence to put in their files. We've seen that in in connection with insider trading cases that we brought in the past. So I've always understood the public interest and fascination with how investigations are unfolding. I know that now in my current life as a legal commentator, I get asked all the time, and we'll talk about one of these things in a moment. I get asked all the time, what's going on with this investigation? What does this tell you? What is the fact that the search was done on so-and-so's property like Rudy Giuliani? What does that mean for the investigation? When can we expect charges? I do my best to engage in reasonable speculation, but the proper role of the investigator is not to be broadcasting steps in the investigation. Now, there are public interest reasons why sometimes you do do that, like when there's a shooting by a police officer and some of the fruits of an investigation are probably best made public, like body cam footage, and we have controversies about that in various jurisdictions. So it depends on the sensitivity of the investigation. It depends on whether or not the crimes are ongoing. It depends on whether or not you think there's a flight risk. But generally speaking, Those are some of the main reasons why you want to keep investigations quiet. This question comes in a tweet from Jonathan, who asks, what do you think the McGahn deal is, and what does it mean for Trump and an obstruction charge? So that's, of course, referring to this ongoing litigation that dates back to the prior administration and the White House counsel, prior White House counsel to Donald Trump, Don McGahn, who was featured prominently in volume two of the Mueller report which seems like it was 100 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago, in fact. And you'll remember that the administration, the prior administration, took the position, not only in this case, but in various cases, that they had a broad immunity with respect to producing documents or being compelled to testify based on executive privilege, deliberative process privilege, in some cases, attorney-client privilege. And in a lot of these cases, that broad assertion of immunity and those broad objections were basically lapped out of court. The White House and the relevant committees have basically announced an agreement that we don't know the details of, but that renders the litigation moot in the D.C. courts, such that Don McGahn will testify. Not clear how much he will testify about, not clear what the deal is. So I can't explicitly answer your first question, but I think it is significant that there is a deal. And some people may ask the further question, well, why is this a huge issue? Why would the Biden White House make such a deal? Because presumably they have now taken over the government and the privilege lies with them, whether they want to assert it or not assert it. And this gets to what I think It's sort of the historically significant thing about this resolution. In case after case after case, when there has been a dispute between the legislative branch and the executive branch, when it comes to an investigation, I was involved in some of these back when I was a Senate staffer myself, there is a worry 
on the part of both sides that you can get an explicit court decision, and there are very, very few of these, but you can get an explicit court decision that is bad for one side or the other, which is why Justice Roberts, in a related case relating to materials being requested from the executive branch, made clear historically that these things are done by a process of accommodation that rarely at the end of the day are fights between Congress and the White House resolved by a court decision. And that's because both sides are wary about where this thing could end up. And history has repeated itself here again. And you're seeing here, as well as in other contexts, that the Biden administration may not necessarily take the knee-jerk opposite view of what the Trump officials asserted, because they have institutional interests in the privileges too. Although I believe it is the case that the Trump administration took to the next broadest level their assertion that they were immune from any kind of compulsory process from the Congress, it's by no means the first time and won't be the last time that administrations of both Democratic and Republican persuasion try to fight the efforts of Congress to get information and testimony. As for your question about what this means for an obstruction charge, you know, I don't know. I think in large part, a lot of people think that ship has sailed. There is considerable evidence that Donald Trump obstructed justice. There was that letter signed by hundreds and hundreds of former prosecutors who asserted that in their view, based on what was contained in the second volume of the Mueller report, that Donald Trump obstructed justice. I think that Don McGahn's testimony in that regard will be significant because he was asked to do various things by Donald Trump, including ending the Mueller investigation on various grounds. I think at one point asking him to get rid of Bob Mueller. I don't know what those facts will be. I don't know where those facts will lead. And I don't know what the appetite is for the Justice Department to go back and file charges based on those allegations and any further testimony from Don McGahn. We'll have to wait and see. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. My guest this week is Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. She's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Antitrust, Competition Policy, and Consumer Rights. She's also the author of a new book, Antitrust, Taking on Monopoly Power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. In other words, She's one of the most distinguished experts on this fascinating area of law and policy. We recently talked at an event hosted by Live Talks Los Angeles, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you. Senator, welcome. Thank you, Preet. It's great to be on with you um, and do LA Live Talks. So thank you. In ordinary times, we'd be in LA, which would be better than my basement. (laughs) (laughs) So congratulations on the book. Um, my, my first, this is a very substantial book. There's research, there's history, 
Did you not get the memo that elected officials' books are supposed to be thin memoirs with sloganeering in them? With beautiful pictures of yourself as a politician, <laughs> yes. And your, well, they, and your family and how we you know we can all pull together. Did you not get that memo? Uh, well, I did get it once a few years ago. I decided it was time to take on this really, really major, major issue for our economy that Washington has just sat on for years. It's like whack-a-mole. Every time you try to do something, someone... Uh, is trying to protect uh, some monopoly. And this is through history, actually. But the difference between now and history is they did take things on. AT&T, the whole breakup of AT&T, Ida Tarbell, the muckraker taking on Standard Oil. And so I really wanted to bring this to life because it's all stuck right now, as you know, in court cases and legalese. So that's why I included over 100 cartoons, including some really there funny- are A lot of cartoons. I, that's yeah. one of my favorite parts, you know, for me. Being a slow reader, that's one of my favorite parts of the book. Is the, and the, is the I like cartoon. the cartoon where the guy's trying to Google the word and Google the word antitrust and his computer starts exploding because uh, he was on Google. Um, the other the other piece of it is um, trying to find some antitrust humor. I use the story of John Oliver's half an hour show devoted to antitrust and monopolies in which he ends by saying, And if this whole story is infuriating you so much that you are yearning for the sweet escape of death, well, bad luck because the casket industry is controlled <laughs> by these three companies. Now, here's the sad part, Preet. One bought the other. So there's only two casket two makers. So you, you maybe obviated the need for me to ask you this question, quoting from your book, because right away you, you made clear to folks why they should care about this. But I want to ask you to amplify. You, you say early on in the book, quote, when people ask me as a senator what monopolies and antitrust policy have to do with their lives, the answer I give now is the same one I gave back then as I raked in the monopoly money rent on my railroads, everything. The answer is everything. Antitrust and monopolies have everything to do with our economy, the prices we pay, and the way we live. Outside of caskets and cat food, what else for, for viewers and listeners is affected by this very important issue? Yep. Well, um, I'd say the big one right now that everyone's focused on, and I don't want to exclude the rest of the economy when you look at this, is tech. So if you're thinking, how come they don't have better privacy regulations well, government should be doing that, and I hope we do that very soon. But think about the fact that a lot of times in capitalism, bells and whistles get developed by competitors. So maybe Instagram or WhatsApp would have developed a great privacy policy or done better with misinformation. We are never going to know because they were bought out by Facebook. Or maybe Waze would have done something different than Google Maps, but then Google Maps bought out Waze. And so you have a situation where um, really uh, in the words of Mark Zuckerberg's email that my friend David Cicilline discovered um, when um, he was doing his great series of hearings and house report, um, where Zuckerberg, to paraphrase, said, uh, you know, these may be small companies, they're nascent, those were his words, competitors, but their brands could be disruptive to us. So, you know, I thought tech and competition by its nature are supposed to disrupt things. And so when you have no disruption and when monopolies start taking over, they do things like, you know, just roll over newspapers and news content providers because they can. And then you start seeing newspapers close down. 
Uh, they do, so that affects people. Yeah. Pharma prices, uh, EpiPen, insulin, that affects people in their everyday lives when monopolies overprice things. Newborn babies, I tell the story um, from a case in Minnesota of what happened to them. Uh, prices go up $108 to $1,500 for a drug treatment for heart defects for newborn babies because one company buys both drugs. It literally goes through our entire economy. What's so strange about it when you talk about tech is it's something you said a second ago struck me that tech is supposed to be about disruption. And for some of these companies, it was. <laughs> Amazon was a disruptor. Facebook was a disruptor. Twitter, Google. I mean, these, these guys <clears throat> haven't been around for a hundred years in fairly short order. They went from something that, that I'm guessing you and your colleagues would have applauded. You know, did applaud. Have, did applaud, right? Uh, and they went from you know, not being profitable and a lot of people wondering, are they even going to succeed and survive to not that long a time later, uh, you know, they're being excoriated in the halls of the Senate. Mm -hmm. Is that inevitable for any successful company that begins as, as a disruptor or not? I don't think so, because you have areas of our economy where there is a competition um, and you don't see that as much. But when you look through history, uh, this story has been told before. So, of course, when AT&T, then called Ma Bell, started, everyone's like, oh, my God, we have a telephone. You know, it might have been this huge thing with the cord, but we have a telephone. This is so great. And that went on for decades and decades. And then pretty soon they controlled everything under them. That would be called a um, that would be called a vertical monopoly because they controlled the machinery. And then they controlled everything on its sides, all those local exchange companies. That's called horizontal dominance. So you had a vertical and a horizontal monopoly. So pretty soon the government starts saying, wait a minute, we don't have any competition. Long distance rates are too high. Uh, there's a cell phone market, but they kind of control that too. So then they broke them up. So that's my point. I, and L, the chairman of AT&T then says later, you know, we're actually a stronger company because we are forced to compete. So the point I have here is it's great that these companies have been successful. They've given us incredible innovations. They employ a ton of people in America. We're not talking about getting rid of them. Come on. We're talking about looking at this through the lens of competition policy and looking at history and saying our laws are on the books as a check. Our laws are on the books because this is inevitable in a capitalist system. Adam Smith, the godfather of American capitalism, he said, you know, he loves this invisible hand, all that stuff. But he said, beware, over and over he said this, um, about this unbridled power of the army of monopolies. Okay, so what do you do? You have to use the laws on the books, and I would say improve them, as we have over time, so that you have a check on these monopolies. And you don't get rid of them. No, no. You just maybe break them up so you can have Instagram or WhatsApp starting to compete with them. You do things like put privacy rules in place. You say to the app stores, seriously, you guys have become the web, Google and Apple. You're going to charge 30% to Match.com and Spotify, a direct competitor of yours? No, you're going to not even allow consumers to be told they could get cheaper rates on their websites. Um, so there's just all kinds of things that you can do, but we have to get the political will to do it, which is why I wrote the book. And a law, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. Did you demote Adam Smith from father to godfather? <laughs> yeah, 
Oh, is that a promotion? I can't. Is that a promotion? It out. Okay, you're right. Father of capitalism. The God, I'm not. I'm I don't know. They both work well. I guess I'm thinking God of capitalism. You know why? Because after our app hearing, where I found out that Google tried to intimidate Match.com the night before the hearing, I'm thinking the Godfather series of movies. I right. Thought, now. I so thought. That's why it's on my mind. <laughs> You've raised a number of, of issues and problems that affect the economy, affect competition, affect individuals. And maybe this is an unfair question, but I, but I wonder if you could rank the issues, you know, and among them are privacy problems, media consolidation, so you don't get more points of view, price gouging in pharma and in other places, issues that arise from too big to fail. Sure. Is there one that's more important than, than all the others and should be focused on? Or do you believe, as I imagine you'll say, you have to take a global approach? Yes. I look at it as consumers and everything you just talked about affects consumers and citizens and people just hardworking people trying to get by. You're not supposed to charge those people a whole bunch of money for EpiPens. You're not supposed to be able to have the monopoly power to push them around on the price of insulin. You're not allowed to lie to them about, oh, you've got all these choices for online travel when two companies control 90% of the market. So I just put the consumers, the people of this country in the middle, and then from there flows the priorities. I would say the most pressing one right now is to something near and dear to your heart with your previous job, uh, DOJ, the Department of Justice, get people in place there that can do this job and then also make sure that DOJ antitrust and the FTC isn't using duct tapes and band-aids to take on the world's biggest companies we have ever known, trillion dollar companies. And they are a shadow of their former selves in terms of number of lawyers, et cetera, even from the Reagan administration. So how do we expect this? Their enforcement was low already. Right. And I am actually glad that during the Trump administration at the end, uh, Macon Delraheim over at DOJ and I trust, I didn't agree with everything he did, but he did bring that suit against Google. And the FTC under Chairman Simon brought a major, major case against Facebook um, with the attorney generals in this case after the election. He did it from around the country. I like it because it goes from a Republican administration to a Democratic administration. And that's actually what's happened in the past with these successful litigated matters. So first thing is get the money, the agencies, Grassley and I have a bipartisan bill to change the fee structure, which hasn't been changed since um, Hart Scott Rodino passed on the mega mergers. And that will bring more money to agencies. And then in the appropriations process, uh, they will need more funding. You just can't pretend you're doing this and talk the talk uh, without making those changes. Secondly, exclusionary conduct, uh, looking back at, as I just mentioned, what you need to do about these the current state of affairs, making that easier to do it. Um, and then the third is mergers going forward, and that is changing the burden. So these big mergers, $5 billion and over, or where they are a major, major monopoly, and then they purchase a small guy, making them have the burden to show uh, that it doesn't hurt competition. One of the things I love about the book that we've already mentioned is how much history there is. And, to, and we'll talk about some of the, I think it's, it's useful for people to understand the ebb and flow of people's concerns about monopoly and competition. But one of my favorite bits is I learned a bit about the game <laughs> and the woman who invented the game. And, and I think this is true. You didn't say it explicitly, but my favorite piece on the monopoly board when I was a kid was the thimble. <laughs> it's my I think yours was too. So exactly. You're obviously we're obviously soulmates um, both on policy and a monopoly. But my question is, you know, growing up, is there some kind of, um, you know, um, brain indoctrination among people in this country who play Monopoly? 
and and from an early age, <clears throat> from an early age, yeah. Monopoly is good. Monopoly is great. It's, it's, it was your favorite game. It was one of my favorite games. Is there something to that? Should should we stop? Should we call it something else? As it was called initially. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to change the name of the game, but I think one of the fascinating stories in the book, which is built on the research of incredible reporters, uh, Mary Pallone from uh, and others from Wall Street Journal, New York Times, people have written. So I kind of consolidated all of it. And in fact, there was a woman named Lizzie McGee, who was a socialist, basically, and a fan of Georgism, Georgianism from the time. And she and made she- Monopoly? She made Monopoly. She was the inventor. It's like literally you see the board and you know the game. She did it to go after Monopolies. The whole thing was showing how bad it was to have Monopolies. Then what happens is this gambler guy um, starts doing sort of copying her thing. And then the game maker, Parker Brothers, comes in and they actually give him a whole ton of money. He becomes rich and they gave her a check for like 500 bucks. And with the promise, they put out her socialist version the next year, two years later, which, of course, went nowhere. Oh, that dude, then, no. Right, exactly. So then Monopoly um, became the uh, the game that it was. And we, as you said, I grew up thinking, you know, I just beat my grandma by buying out all the railroads and, the, you know, and getting those that park place um, and those places. Um, and that was we played it in that way that that capitalism, successful capitalism was all about just buying stuff out. And it, that's fine. That does true. People do sometimes better when they go bigger. I'm not quarreling with that, but there were no antitrust cards in that little chance card pile. Right. And so I think the point of this is not to go after the game, but to step back and realize that. We need to look at competition policy in terms of what our country was really built on, the concerns that the founding fathers had. Go even before that, so many people came to our country because they wanted religious freedom, political freedom, but they also wanted economic freedom. They were a bunch of mavericks. They didn't want to have to buy tea from the East India Tea Company. That was part of the Tea Party. And then you move forward, and as the Gilded Age developed, and it took 100 years for Congress to finally do something, you started to have these angry farmers with pitchforks and people organizing on the streets of Chicago union movement uh, because of monopolies, whether they be rail or the Pullman monopoly or some of the ag monopolies, train, you just name it. And they uh, then organized and it got to the point where state governors, legislatures, and finally Washington had to act. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing, and I, and it doesn't feel the same because we don't, no one's having pitchforks, but I think that's what you're seeing with tech. And we need to seize this moment. We're not, I don't, I was in the private sector for 14 years. I think it's great we have successful companies. I just want to have more successful companies. I don't want them all bought up by a bunch of gatekeepers and they make it hard for anyone to achieve any level of competition with them. I think what we have right now is dangerous. Just look at the misinformation online. Just look at the fact that um, we've got privacy violations and problems up the wazoo. I just think it's time to finally enforce our antitrust laws and make them as sophisticated as our current economy. So you mentioned the founders and you have passages in the book, as you mentioned just now, describing you know the impulse and the spirit of the founders in terms of not just democracy, but also economic freedom. And yet the constitution itself, as you also point out, doesn't have much to say about this. Uh, I'm not asking you to second guess the, the framers too much, but was that, a, was that a mistake? Should there have been something in the actual nation's charter on this? 
Well, they make little references. They have reference about protecting intellectual property. They have a reference about basically not having to pay out, of course, uh, to England um, and some of the bad practices that were going on there from the British government. So that's in there. But what they don't do is specifically mention monopolies. And there's uh, really interesting exchanges that I have in there between various founding fathers like Jefferson and Madison about this. And they basically conclude, you know what? It's gonna be okay. I think it was Madison saying, it's gonna be okay because the people will stand up. That's why we're setting up this government. They'll do something about it when, when it's necessary. Well, he was right. It just took a hundred years. Um, and finally his words were rewarded because the Sherman Act finally passes with a Republican Senator from Ohio because of this movement that I just talked about. So I go through all that to give people some hope that throughout time, the Clayton Act uh, the government taking on, as I mentioned, AT&T or Microsoft um, and some of the past action, Standard Oil with journalists called Muckrakers back then, a woman named Ida Tarbell writing this volumes of work about Standard Oil. It resulted in that breakup. So this has happened in the past. We're just not doing anything right now and it's time to act. You know, I've noticed a couple of times in our conversation, you have said forcefully, look, I think big business is great. I think people, you know, should be able to make money. I was in the private sector for 14 years. Do you find it necessary to always emphasize that because people misunderstand what antitrust reform is about when you talk about it or when you're calling mm-hmm. it's just, it's just striking to me. Yeah. Well, that, that you, you keep having to say, hey, listen, I'm not crazy. I believe in <laughs> capitalism. I believe in all this stuff. I'm just saying X, this limited yeah. thing. Well, really two reasons. One, because it's true. I do believe in capitalism. I just think you need checks and balances. And I, too, if you notice I do that, part of it is because I need to build the support for this. And I get pushback all the time from some Democrats, although I'll note like Mark Warner is on my big bill right now, um, uh, the sweeping reform, as well as, of course, Blumenthal, Cory Booker. We've got I got a whole bunch of bipartisan bills uh, taking on tech when it comes to newspapers. Um, I've got, you know, the funding bill with Grassley. I think it's important to talk about this in a way that isn't just completely partisan, but at its core, to make clear, competition policy is about giving consumers, as I've noted, a chance at good prices, and they get sucked in sometimes. I do. Everyone does. Oh, this this seems cheap. And then the next thing you know, what monopolies do is they start charging more later. The second thing is wages. If you only have one monopoly, they can decide to set the wages or they can uh, collude if there's just a few of them uh, to set wages. There's been suits about this. Minorities, women-owned businesses, they can try to start, but if it's really hard to compete in an, an exclusionary environment as they try to grow, that's really tough to do. Um, immigration reform would be a great argument for competition because you start bringing in uh, the workers that we need. It's always easier for big business to bring in people than it is for small. I make the argument in this book that this goes beyond the antitrust laws, that competition policy, as they talk about it in other countries, includes a whole bunch of things. And we'd be much better off if we start thinking about things in that framework. We believe in a strong economy. Uh, Most of us believe in a capitalist system, but only if it has checks and balances so it doesn't become a monopoly system, which is where we're headed right now. One of the checks and balances we have in our system of democracy is the courts. The courts are sometimes good, 
depending on the issue and the subject, the courts are sometimes not so good. So, you, you know, it's a very arresting story you tell at the beginning of the book that you already mentioned, um, the story of a company called Ovation, which bought up a drug from Merck that treats a rare uh, heart valve problem in, in premature babies. So they buy that drug, then they buy another drug. The only two drugs that treat that issue, and 30-something thousand you know, babies get it, they jack up the price, as you mentioned. Um, and you describe it in a way, factually, that you know, a reasonable person would think this is pretty terrible. You know, yeah. as you as you mentioned, went from one hundred eight dollars a unit to fifteen hundred dollars a unit, forty four times the price of what people in Canada pay for the same thing. It seems like a wonderful court case. It seems to be right in the tradition of existing antitrust laws. They're sued by the FTC. It goes to court, and then what happens? What happens is a federal district court judge uh, finds some market argument that they're not the same, um, which is literally ridiculous when you look at the fact that they're the only two drugs and there's all kinds of evidence of emails and things saying we can from the companies we can price them however we want well yeah because they own both of them and then it goes up to the notoriously conservative eighth circuit which has only gotten worse um, and they say we throw it out and the ftc along with a bunch of attorney generals including from some very red states uh, finally, uh, just uh, decide it could only this can only get worse. And the opinion, uh, which says that allows this company to keep doing this, uh, was you know criticized uh, by by many. But it just shows what we're up against, and that is because of the Bork philosophy that came out of my alma mater, the University of Chicago. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, which uh, yes, which you know, basically uh, looked at competition in this very strange way about what was in the consumer consumer welfare, consumer goods, basically. And they, he argued um, that um, efficiency and that even protecting monopoly, even protecting big companies is in that. And it just put everything on its head. Out of that has come a number of conservative, not my case, just in general, out of that has come a number of conservative court rulings that have completely backtracked from where the law was back in, say, the AT&T timeframe. Um, and so what we've got now is even more conservative judges on the justices on the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, uh, both uh, have made in the past incredibly conservative rulings against the tide uh, when it comes to what's an okay merger or what's okay conduct. Um, and so now they're on there ensconced on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh did in one case side with the more liberal justices, but that's when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on there and it was about tech. Um, but other than that, uh, Gorsuch has gone full out working. And so the concern is if you're going to wait for the courts to help on this, maybe in tech uh, because of some of the differences with how tech, but it's going to be, we're never going to get there. And so that's my argument for changing the laws and um, doing something we've always done, which is make our laws fit the times. When, they, when the Clayton and Sherman Act passed um, and all the, some of the other bills that have passed through time, there wasn't even an internet, much less an Apple store. And so our situations now demand, I think, a more aggressive, sophisticated approach for way the law works, although I don't think it's one bit radical. And then also maybe some individual things to happen to happen immediately, such as laws governing the app store, a new law, uh, app stores, there's really only two, Google and Apple, um, or doing something about the newspapers and content. Um, so those are, there are many approaches and I'm open to all of them. 
you know, you talk about the Chicago school and you talk about Bork and you talk about conservatives slash Republican. And, and I'm wondering how that happened. Because as you remind everyone in your book, the author of the Sherman Act, John Sherman, Republican, 1890. Now, I know the Republican Party was very different in the late 1800s. But then you also point out that Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. you know, sort of was on the was the tip of the spear on this kind of antitrust enforcement. And it's not clear to me why it should be the case that if you're conservative and you have the ideology of a conservative, you should be favorable to monopolists. Exactly. (laughs) So I don't get, so I don't, so I don't get that. And it's such a mess right now because, okay, so everything you said is right. It's always was bipartisan. You had William Jennings Bryant and, and then you had, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, right? So it's because of the belief in capitalism that um, Republicans and Democrats were drawn to it. And also the consumers and the little guys and helping people in this country. It all small business. I thought they were on the side of small business. Exactly. It's small business. So now here what happens. So then the, the sort of during the Reagan Bush time period and even seeping into some of our Democratic presidents are like, okay, well, politically, this antitrust thing sounds real radical and chamber doesn't like it. So we're going to just start adopting these philosophies, mostly Republicans. We're going to adopt these philosophies uh, that will make it harder to enforce the antitrust laws. We're going to put judges on like that. We're going to not do changes to the laws. And in, and there were some, you know, the Republican Party was split even back during AT&T about whether they should settle it or not or what they should do. You saw the Microsoft case getting settled kind of um, a very easily for Microsoft at the very end. And so so that keeps going. And then where we are now is it's gotten so out of hand, right, that you're starting to see some Republicans start pushing back. Ones that have been traditionally for small entrepreneurs and farmers, that'd be like a Grassley. Um, and a little bit Danes did some work on this. There's a few others like that. Then you have the more conservative group, which is Cruz and Holly, <laughs> Blackburn, uh, uh, Lee, depending on the issue, Lee was great on this App Store one, uh, that are pushing back, um, one, for something I don't agree with at all. They're claiming you know, conservative content and they're trying to politicize it. But then sometimes their words are really similar to Republicans from the past that took this on. It's about entrepreneurs and small businesses. So, you know, you basically take your support where you can find it. I know David Cicilline is having the same experience over in the House, um, but you do have a split in the Republican Party right now about how to how to handle this. And it's not like the split you see in other areas, I got to be honest, because you've got Democrats and Republicans who get too close, I think, to some of these businesses tech, pharma, you name it. And so then they just kind of, oh, no, we can't do that. And so that's why I feel like I'm in a game of whack-a-mole all the time. Well, okay, we're going to get this grassy Klobuchar thing done. I almost had it done at the end of the year. I had the White House with me. Meadows was for it. I had Shelby was for it. Mitch had said, okay. Then we go over to the house and suddenly guess who says no? McCarthy and Jordan. So then every single time you try it, something happens. So that leads me to I need strong support from the White House, which I think I'm going to have to move forward. We need strong people in the DOJ and in FTC. And Lena Khan was just nominated. I think that's a great thing. Uh, Tim Wu is over at the White House now. They get this stuff. Um, And so that's what I need to move. And then I need to take it to the public, which is why I wrote the book and why I'm on uh, LA Live Talk. I know LA cares about this. California does. I know you've got tech up north, but I also know 
um, that uh, is in uh, California. People care a lot about uh, content uh, and about competition um, and about not limiting people's ability uh, to compete. That's why everyone went to California in the first place. They were looking for a new frontier. So there you go. So the other thing you talk about, you know, when, when you explain and describe how ossified antitrust law is, uh, you know, there are some peculiarities and idiosyncrasies in antitrust law. And one of them is the area of exemptions. And there's one judge created exemption that's kind of peculiar. And that's a blanket exemption for baseball. Yeah. No blanket exception for football, but there's a blank exception for baseball, which has been upheld by the Supreme Court a number of times. Now, the reason I'm asking you is well, that's in the news lately. Oh, yes. For very bad reasons. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I wonder how you feel about it. So right. some of your Republican colleagues want to re- now all of a sudden remove the baseball antitrust exemption because they're angry that baseball moved the All-Star game out of Georgia because of these terrible laws that are being passed in Georgia to suppress the vote, in my view. How do you think about the baseball exemption in light of the current climate? Well, uh, that is a horrible reason to make a change. And so that alone makes people pause. It's just kind of like, um, I had some issues um, uh, with the AT&T merger um, that involves CNN. And, but the president issue with it, of course, was that he didn't like CNN. Right. You can't have that as a reason for making decisions. And that's exactly what they're doing with the baseball antitrust exemption and why I wouldn't join them, um, because they're literally politicizing this as opposed to looking at things as a whole. I tell the story in my book about how that um, about the football fight of one football player. Uh, to try to make the argument that the NFL was a monopoly. And it's kind of a wild story how we got there. I also make tell the story of Donald Trump himself and the defunct um, competitor to the NFL, the um, football league, and how he um, basically undermined it himself in a court case. It's a wild, wild story. I've like, found everything about Donald Trump's involvement with antitrust. Um, but in the end, I think... You wouldn't just go after one uh, baseball. You'd have to look at this as a whole and figure it out with new policies and if there's exclusionary conduct. But I am just uh, appalled by you know my colleagues. It's so cynical because instead of that's been our problem during the Trump era. Instead of just taking on antitrust, which Donald Trump was in a great position to do, and his people did by the way good work at the end, he decided to politicize every merger he didn't like. And that's exactly what they're trying to do with baseball. They're just blaming them because they didn't like what they did in Georgia. You cannot have competition policy run on the political whim of uh, individuals. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm in to that. You know, on enforcement, this is sort of weird. I've always found this weird. And I don't know if you want to answer the question and offend anyone in either of the, either of the agencies. But Oh, you mean as, as the person that's that's willing to take on all the big tech companies no, and no, but, oh, it's going to happen to you the next day because of it? No, no, no. Well, you'll maybe you'll appreciate what I mean. There are wonderful career professionals at the DOJ Antitrust Division and at the FTC. Yep. And I've been in the Department of Justice. I, by the way, I like you. In my first two years of practice after law school, did a lot of antitrust work. So we have that in common too. Not just the thimble. We have we have that too. <laughs> um, but for the life of me, and I don't think anybody's been able to explain this satisfactorily, why it is that sometimes the Antitrust Division of DOJ examines a merger and acquisition, and sometimes it's the FTC. And, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether or not those sort of lines of authority should be more clear or there should be some kind of combination. Do you see what mm-hmm. I did there? 
combination of of DOJ antitrust and the FTC? Is is it inefficient for there to be two different agencies? So I think you it you can coordinate better in terms of and by the way they did that right with the Google Facebook FTC took the Facebook suit and DOJ took the Google suit they did that even during with uh, Chairman Simon and with uh, Macon Delrahim over in the Trump administration uh, they have to when they're taking on the world's biggest companies the FTC jurisdiction of course includes not just this and some pieces of antitrust, but also consumer issues, advertising. Um, So they have a whole reason for being. What concerns me is when some of my colleagues, like my friend Mike Lee, who's been great on a number of issues where he's worked with me, kind of just wants to limit what the FTC can do. I think that's just, I don't think that's going to be helpful at all right now. I think you just need the kind of coordination that you're talking to about um, uh, with each administration, if you really want to do your jobs to uh, protect consumers. And the FTC has done some really good things in the past, including the lawsuit I just mentioned. I want to start talking about s- solutions, and you mentioned some of them. You have, as you, and it is sweeping bill, uh, S225. And you talk about a lot of things. And in, in your book, by the way, unlike some books by elected officials where there's sort of a, you know, a brief panacea type conclusion, you know, you diagnose the problems and there's not much. Lo- you have, you have 25 recommendations Yes, um, in, in, in various categories, including, you know, what Congress can do, which you're a member of, what the president can do, and then what the public can do. Can you, can you talk about, I want to come back to your bill in a moment, but what, what yeah. the president of the United States can do on his own to alleviate some of these problems? I think the number one thing is putting people in place uh, that have the credibility and the experience uh, to take on these big companies. And he's doing that as we speak. Merrick Garland himself Um, was mentioned it when President Biden was standing next to him when he was nominated. And he himself has taught antitrust. He knows it from his work on the D.C. Circuit. I think that is one big beginning to have an attorney general that's knowledgeable about the issue. Um, And then you have um, the people he's putting in um, have pledged to make it um, also a major priority, including Lisa Monaco. Um, He still hasn't announced the head of DOJ antitrust, but that's very important as well. Then you go to the work they can do. They can do so much um, as long as they ask for the resources, which Trump never did till the end, and we're able to build these cases. That's where the rubber hits the road. What are they doing with these cases? Are they being tough enough? Are they being smart about the ones they bring on instead of during the Trump administration? Sadly, they put a bunch of resources into marijuana and uh, what the California was doing, which was smart about auto admissions. And they tried to act like they were violating the antitrust laws. So uh, analyzing industries, Casper uh, Weinberger used to I have the FTC one was for this, uh, looking at each industry to figure out the consolidation. <laughs> they People stopped doing it because business didn't like it. Um, there are many things they can do. Um, and then you go to the third thing, what individual people can do. And that is, well, in addition to, you know, reading my book, uh, that is um, uh, getting on board with some of the groups working on this all the time, uh, like open markets and um, I have a list of the of the different agencies, I mean, sorry, nonprofits where they can actually get on their uh, websites and figure out what's going on. Uh, they can ask elected officials about this all the time of both parties. Um, they can write them, but they can also ask them whether they're doing Zoom calls or real person meetings. Um, and then I have the stuff we should be doing. And I make it really clear it's not just about antitrust, because I like to call it competition policy. Uh, It is also about 
um, everything from patent reform to uh, making sure that um, we've got a minimum wage in place that works for people. Um, this is all about competition and how we're going to get a stronger economy. Immigration policy is so helpful uh, so that uh, we're bringing in new blood. This is all about competition policy for people uh, to work at not just big companies, but little companies as well. Can you get this into infrastructure? Um, I, yeah, well, I'm actually working to get the uh, Klobuchar-Grassley bill, which we're both working on, into this um, competition bill that Senator Schumer and Senator Young are doing. Um, and people are very interested in doing that. That would change the fees. It already was passed. It already was okayed through the Senate at the end of the year. So that would be a good good start. And, and we'll see about the infrastructure bill. That's taking a little longer. So. Yeah. yeah you, you talk about something that I think is very important and doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in this sphere of, of, of workers' rights. Mm-hmm. And maybe people who haven't experienced this personally don't realize there are lots and lots of workers in America who sign what's called a non-compete. Non-compete. Which, depending on how it's written, precludes them post-employment for some period of time, sometimes for a pretty onerous period of time, from doing similar kinds of work, whether they're highly compensated or not. Generally believed to be unenforceable. California's passed a particular statute to turn this away from this. But man, a lot of companies, you know, for at-will employees, make them sign those things and employees want the job and they don't think ahead and they sign them. What do you think about that? Well, that is a perfect, thank you for bringing it up because that's one of the big examples I use of what competition policy should be. Um, it's one thing to say that you are, you know, an engineer that has all these secrets from a company because of your high position and what you know, and you shouldn't be able to work at a, a competitor for a few years, or if you're someone that has a really, really high position. It's another to say sandwich workers at Jimmy John's or somewhere um, aren't able to go get a job. And literally now there've been cases and there has been a, a number of them have been one where you can't have low level employees that are then can't go to another company. It's like you're, it's like you have like, uh, they're not golden handcuffs, right? Uh, They're like, I don't know what you call them. Uh, they're zip zip ties. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's good. I guess that's why you're doing that. I'm doing my job, but you are good at this zip ties. That's what it is. Um, you, you are, you're stuck where you are. You can't go anywhere. They won't let you, you sign something that you probably didn't even understand. And so that's why federal legislation to limit how those are used is a very smart idea uh, because um, that also it is, you know, maybe on its face, it sounds good for the economy only because some businesses want it, but overall it's bad for the economy because the economy includes the workers and the workers should be able to sell their goods, which is themselves um, to other companies. Are there particular companies who like (laughs) AT&T, are just way too, I mean, maybe you've already, you know, mentioned this. They're just way too big and they need to be broken up. And will you name, will you name them? Uh, Yeah, but you've got to do it under the law. You can't just decree it. Right. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, like, like, you know, they're too big to fix basically, uh, as opposed to too big to fail. Um, and I think we do have that going on with these, um, tech gatekeepers and it doesn't mean that you get rid of them. I am saying that again, 
It means you say to Google, uh, no, you can't self-preference your own products over other products. Uh, you Google and you Apple, uh, no, you can't charge 30% of the money up when people buy stuff on these app stores uh, like Spotify, which directly compete with your Apple Music. Uh, you can't charge that high. Uh, you can't uh, not tell consumers that there's cheaper ways or not allow the people that have the apps on your app store uh, to do that. You can't intimidate witnesses on the eve of a hearing. Um, uh, companies like Facebook, no, we got to spin off Instagram and WhatsApp and set some really clear rules of the road of what you can do. All of that, just as you know, Apple itself came up, uh, some of these companies came up because there were pauses in monopolization in certain areas while they were looking at IBM and other places. Microsoft came up that way. And then it's like this circle, then they get really big. Then if you don't do anything, they're just going to dominate Amazon, you know, with, uh, with the way they dominate that uh, particular area. You've just got to start taking these on and either by legislation or by agencies uh, to get more competition. I mentioned to you that I began my career doing some antitrust law. And if you talk to lawyers, they will, you know, I think one of the reasons why it's difficult to penetrate on these issues to the public is that, you know, among, among the most complicated areas of law, if you're actually practicing and you're, and you're trying to get the TRO, prevent the merger, et cetera, uh, you know, private antitrust law is the complexity of it. Um, and I remember early on, law partners would say that, you know, the two most complicated areas of law as a practitioner, arguably are antitrust and tax. Did you enjoy practicing it as a lawyer in private practice? Do you agree with that assessment? And is that one of the reasons why it's hard for, you know, non-practitioners to understand the issues? Oh, it's so hard. And I actually wasn't a straight antitrust lawyer. And that's one of the more interesting things about the book. Um, I learned this over years of starting with those uh, games of Monopoly at my best friend, Amy Sherber's cabin, um, going forward to my work at the law firm where I actually represented MCI. They were um, one of my major clients over many, many years. And it's when they were trying to get into the local markets and those were dominated after the breakup of AT&T. So I just saw firsthand this argument. I saw how we were always on the sides of the consumers in almost every case that I did with the attorney general's office and the like. And that's what gave me this understanding. Wait a minute, at an early young lawyer, you can uh, be doing actually private practice and be on the side of the consumer and uh, competition. And from there, I uh, learned some when our daughter was born and they had these insurance rules on um, you could only stay in the hospital for 24 hours. And I got kicked out and I thought, wow, I took that on. And then I end up on the Judiciary Committee and the chair or ranking member of the Antitrust Subcommittee. And that's when that was the most eye-opening part. So I have learned this over time and I thought, well, why not do this book? Uh, because I'm a little bit like everyone else. I'm not a full-time antitrust lawyer. I've just happened to have these life experiences, including- and you're not my, busy at all, you know, running for president, being no, a senator. No, but I've had these experiences. My grandpa- was free time. Right. But, you know, my grandpa working in the iron ore mines to, you know, create the James J. Hill empire with his big house just 15 miles from our somewhat smaller house or a lot smaller house. Um, and so it just gave me that sense to be able to write the book. And I tried as much. Of course, the policy stuff at the end gets, uh, you know, that's I had to dig in on that. But I tried to write it in a way that people would find it interesting so that they can help me get this done because we need help. 
Absolutely. And the cartoons, there's cartoons. Yeah, over 100. Over 100. Um, Senator Klobuchar, thank you for your service. Writing this very important book that everyone should read. I found it great, entertaining, and informative. And I'm now going to be an activist alongside you. Okay. So, so thank Excellent. you. Thank you, Preet. My conversation with Senator Amy Klobuchar continues from members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about a fairly creepy case that I was once involved with that has spawned in recent days an ongoing mystery. So the saga begins more than 10 years ago on Thanksgiving Sunday when I was with my family coming back from visiting my in-laws outside of Chicago. I'm at O'Hare Airport sometime in the afternoon. And rather than go online and read the New York Times that way, I actually bought, because this was, you know, generations ago, I bought the thick Sunday edition of the New York Times, sat in the airport. And for some reason, I began reading the New York Times magazine first. And I come upon this story that caught my eye, written by a journalist named David Siegel. And it was about an online salesman named Vitaly Borker, who lived in New York City. And the story was about Mr. Borker's business, which was what? Selling high-end eyewear on a website called decormyeyes.com. So far, so good. Nothing super interesting about that. But as the story unfolded, the reader learns that Vitaly Borker was a pretty villainous character, an entrepreneur, that people would order high-end eyeglasses but would receive broken eyeglasses or fake eyeglasses or fraudulent eyeglasses. And when customers complained, they didn't get refunds. What they got was harassment and threats. So the ripped off customers first were ripped off and then some of them feared for their own safety and even for their lives. In one case, Borker repeatedly called a Manhattan-based victim, sometimes in the middle of the night, saying that he was watching her and threatened to, quote, kick her ass, end quote. He sent pictures of one complainant's home to show her he knew where she lived. Now, why was he doing all this? It wouldn't seem to be good for business, but one fascinating aspect of the story is, back then, 10 years ago, he understood that when people complained about these tactics online, that allowed his website, decormyeyes.com, to rank higher in Google web searches. Because back then, the Google search algorithm didn't really distinguish properly between positive and negative feedback. So I'm reading it, and I'm getting more and more incensed at all the examples of his misconduct. And by the way, some of this stuff came out of Vitaly Borker's own mouth. He actually agreed to sit with David Siegel for an interview. And I'm getting more and more incensed. And I say to myself, I think I literally muttered to myself, someone should do something about this guy. And then I remembered that I was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And this is something we could do something about. So I quickly emailed the folks in my complex frauds unit, the chiefs, and said, hey, you should check out this article. And of course, my teams are always really on top of things. And so they kind of looked like they were laughing at me and said, Preet, we've been emailing about this article in Vitaly Borker for hours. Why don't you go back to bed? And so within days, after a lot of investigative work on the part of folks in my office, Borker was in custody and later was indicted on charges of cyberstalking, threatening interstate communications, mail fraud, and wire fraud. And it ended up being a fairly serious crime. And he pled guilty. And ultimately, there was a fairly serious and moving sentencing hearing at which victims testified as to how they were terrorized by this so-called entrepreneur. And he was sentenced to a number of years in prison. The story doesn't end there. Sometime after he was released for prison, on those convictions, and a few months after I left office in 2017, 
it turns out that Vitaly Borker was at it again. This time, the website wasn't called Decor My Eyes. It was called OpticsFast.com. And he was a little bit more moderate, not threatening physical violence in the same way, but he was doing the same scam and harassing people and putting their personal information online if he didn't like their complaints. And the Southern District of New York, both based on a supervised release violation and also a new criminal charge, Borker bought himself another four years behind bars. He got out of prison only in November of 2020. Now fast forward to May 2nd of this year, and there's another David Siegel piece, again in the New York Times. Now it's been almost 11 years since that first story, and what is David Siegel writing about? You guessed it, another website that sells high-end eyewear, this time called eyeglassesdepot.com. And what's the story about? You guessed it. People who are shopping for eyewear on eyeglassesdepot.com are being ripped off and harassed and doxxed, you know, their private personal information being put on websites by sales representatives after they complain. Sounds awfully familiar. Now, is this Vitaly Borker a third time? Well, through a lawyer, he vehemently denies that it's him, claims that he sold the prior company to some other person who David Siegel has not seemed to have been able to identify. But as the journalist writes in his article, the source code of Borker's last site, Optics Fast, and the new problematic retailing site are extremely similar, bordering on being almost identical. So that's some indicia that it could be, and I'm not saying it is, that it could be Vitaly Borker again. I want to stress that Vitaly Borker has not been accused of anything in connection with the latest round of eyeglasses fraud. He hasn't been charged by the Southern District of New York or anyone else, and maybe it's not him. But part of the reason I mentioned the story is it's always been an important case to me, and an example of the ways in which vigorous and rigorous investigative journalism helps to expose misconduct and helps to bring to the attention of prosecutors criminal behavior for which people should be held accountable. Will that happen again in this case, whether it's Vitaly Borker or someone else? Time will tell, but my guess is the folks at the Southern District of New York will get to the bottom of it. Stay tuned. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and the team over at Live Talks Los Angeles. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Weiner, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 